Howdy. Welcome to 127 on the Mic. This sermon was recorded by our college pastor, John Davison, as we walk through the book of Daniel on Sunday nights here at 127. We believe that God has something unique to teach us and how the book of Daniel points us to how Jesus is the greater Daniel. If you have any questions, feel free to check out our website, which is fbcbryan.org slash college. Thank you. Amen. Grab a seat. Daniel chapter 11. That's where we're going. As you're finding that, your Bible should just naturally open to it at this point. Um, but as you're finding it, let me remind you of a couple things. We're, we talked about mission this morning, um, and, and we got to stir our people up and had a lot of people come to me afterwards just having conversations about sending college students on mission, which reminds me that you need to be signing up and finalizing some of your plans for the summer and other spaces, and we need to know about those. So if the Lord is stirring your heart to go on mission somewhere, you're joining us, or you're wanting to go with another organization, would you send me an email or grab me after the service and just let me know that, or ask any questions that you may have about those trips. The Costa Rica trip is almost full. We can send a lot of people to Japan, and, and I don't know if I've given you the, the commercial for Japan yet. I went there last summer. The Lord is doing some unbelievable work in Japan that's also wildly difficult. It's going to be one of, it was my favorite place that I've been to on mission so far because it's beautiful and the people are super nice and the food is incredible. Uh, it's, un, it's clean as can be. Like the subway stops and people run through and clean it before they let you on and it's so dark. You say Jesus, they say who? You say the Bible, I've never heard of that. And they're polite and Christianity is is it's not so much welcomed, but it's not pushed against. They're just not religious. And sometimes doing missions in places that are not religious is pretty exciting and really difficult. And so we're sending more people this summer with the goal of taking a larger team in the summer of 2025 because the World Expo is in Osaka where millions of people from around the globe are just gonna invade that place. And you're like, well, that's exciting. We can reach a lot of people from other places. That's true, but also our opportunity to engage with the, the native Japanese who are not going to go out in public during that time and who are avoiding the malls and all of that. And they're a very social culture. And so for you to go and to meet them on their college campus and invite them into your circle, like, hey, we're just gonna be hanging out at a park. You wanna come hang out? They love that. And so the opportunity to, to be there for an extended period of time and share the gospel with them is gigantic. So that's my commercial for Japan. Join us or let us know where the Lord is sending you. New York is an incredible trip. Ask some of our people that have gone. Uh, we're, we're back there this year for year four. Um, and we're taking some of our high school students with us, uh, which will be scary and fun at the same time. And so come and, and hang out with those and either lead or be a part of some of our college teams that are running around New York City and other places. But, but we're not going to know that you're wanting to go until you sign up or come and have a conversation with me. Okay, so don't just sit on it and then show up and be like, I'm ready for New York without that. There it is. All right. Um, and then Caleb said this about study nights, and you guys were nice to not correct him from the stage. The 6th is a Wednesday, um, and so not the 10th. The 6th is the Wednesday, and that one will start later after youth. And then the 10th is a Sunday. We still have our, that's our last 127 at night, and that'll roll into study nights. Yeah, that, that's fine. And then, uh, thank you for that, but we all are ready to go home for a break. Yep. And then uh, that, just pay attention to social media for those. Pay attention for social media this week for, uh, for prayer gatherings on campus and up here. Uh, we want to encourage you to go to those. And then last, some of you have asked about the camp t-shirts. Uh, if we had extras or if you didn't get yours, they're in the back. Zach's actually holding up a box. And so if you went on retreat, I said camp, if you went on retreat with us on fall retreat and you didn't get your shirt, it's probably in that box. 
or if you saw the shirts that our own Sierra designed and came out really cool, if you saw those and like, I want one, but I didn't go on retreat, then we sell them to you at cost, which is right at $15. And so you can get one um, tonight. There's uh, one, there's one 2X, there's some extra large and large and mediums in that box. And so it's first come, first serve. We ordered about 20 extra. You can get those, okay? And maybe you just want another one or you spilled ink on it or something weird. All right, you get that. Okay, Daniel chapter 11. Here we go. Here's this idea that I need you to see. God knows the future. And in, in, in advance, he's way ahead of that. And he's sovereign over not just the future, but he's sovereign over the rise and the fall of all of the kingdoms, great and small, and he's directing history in a way that brings him the most glory. We just need, we just need to sit in this. But then you know this from James 4, verse 1. What is the source of wars and fighting among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You ask and you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives. Your lust for power, our lust for prestige, for notoriety, for grabbing up possessions is this dark cloud that casts a shadow over all of human history going all the way back to Genesis 4 with Cain and Abel. You didn't accept this. I want more. I'm murdering my brother. And it goes all through biblical history. It's alive today. And Daniel chapter 11 really does bring this to life and gives us kind of a, a, even a more clear picture of what this is. So, so Daniel 10, 11, and 12 are a, a unit, I, I'm going to say, kind of this, this combination of things that give us a, a view of the future. It's just this chunk of prophecy that allows us to zoom in on history in a way that uh, reveals a few things. And some of you that have been in church for a while, you've heard like your pastor or youth pastor or somebody uh, go to the blank page in between Malachi and Matthew. And, and you, they show this to you. I'm trying to flip over to it. Oh, I went too far. That's Malachi. Go back. Um, they show you this blank page and they say, it's like, what? It's 400 years of silence between, between the prophet and then when the gospels come alive through Jesus. And we think, God's not speaking. We don't know what's happening. It's the mute button, and everybody's just running around in the unknown, except for this fact. Daniel 10, 11, and 12 talk about what happens on that page. That blank page, Daniel is highlighting in like what we're going to call silent, but Daniel goes, this is what's taking place in those 400 years. And it's literally kind of a civil war that takes place. It's a civil war. We, we see a couple countries invited into this. This is a a remarkable passage for a couple different reasons and also really difficult because it's, it's unique in its context. It gives us this view of history that's hard to preach through. I'm, I'm reading commentaries and H.C. Leopold says this, that he does not think that it can be preached in a sermon. It might be okay for a Bible study, but not for a proclamation. On the other hand, because of its detailed and accurate description of history, a lot of liberal scholars have even denied its prophetic nature. So they argue, and we talked about this before in Daniel, they argue that some second century author just decided to record the history and then pass it off as prophecy to us. 
It's this cool little technical theological term that's called vaticium ex eventu, which means prophecy from or after the event. This is what they're arguing is taking place. So my response to this as I study it is, hear me, this is difficult. And there are some, there's some people that it talks about that I hate pronouncing their names. There's history in here that's really clear, and so it can make you think this way, but here's my response. First, if, if all of the Bible is inspired, breathed out by, through the Holy Spirit of God, then that includes Daniel chapter 11, and we should preach it. We should stand on a platform and declare it out loud. It's probably more challenging than Philippians chapter 1, but it still needs to be proclaimed. In that same commentary, James Boyce writes this, even though the 11th chapter is difficult, it calls for a detailed explanation. This is the last, the longest, the most detailed, and therefore the most important prophecy in the book. Okay? And then the second issue with this prophecy comes down to the supernatural character or nature of God that we see all throughout Scripture. Because if God is omniscient, he knows all things, past, present, and future, then this really highly predictive chunk of prophecy in Daniel chapter 11 is not really a problem for God. We just have to go. He did it. He, he, he breathed it out. An angel spoke it to Daniel. Daniel wrote it down, and then we get to read it. This is just where we're at. And so my conviction is this is supernaturally prophetic, and we can hold it completely true. And so as we look as we try to break down, as we try to study this book, I want you to see two divisions. There's four verses, and then there's another, we're going to look at 16 verses, 17 verses really, after that. And it's four different kingdoms, four different countries, if we want to go that way, these kingdoms and how they relate to God's people, to the nation of Israel, and then how, why this is of interest to Daniel. So we'll just start in verse 1. In the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to strengthen and protect him. Okay, this is the angel. We call him Gabriel. He's speaking here. And, and he says, just in the first year, I came on the scene to strengthen and protect Darius. This is, if it's the first year of him, then that's two years before what we're seeing here. And this is important. Because two years before is when this ruler went ahead and said, hey, Israel, you are free. You can go. All of the Jewish people can return back to Jerusalem. And so maybe it was this angel saying, hey, I'm going to strengthen you to make a really hard call. Let these people go. Send them home from exile. And, and really, this is the idea. In verses 1 and 2, because you continue to read from there, now I will tell you the truth. Three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth will be far richer than the others. By the power he gains through his riches, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. And so God allows this ruler to rise up. He supports this ruler because he's going to make a decision to send his people back home. He chooses this guy to lead. The angel strengthened him, and then verse 2 starts, and it's this really lengthy history lesson that I'm inviting you into, and I'm going to apologize right off the bat, because 
it starts with this divine revelation or proclamation, now I will tell you the truth. And then three kings will arise in Persia. We, if you want to know their names, that's Cambyses, 530 to 522 BC, Smyrdas, 522 BC, and Darius, 522 to 486 BC. These are the kings that ruled. The fourth rises up. It says it here that it's far richer than the other. These king, or this king provokes Greece, sets the stage for the start of the Greek empire. His name was Xerxes. 486 to 465 BC. He's a little arrogant. He decides to invade Greece. He takes his entire army with him and he's defeated by the Greek army and Persia, done. This is what God does. God uses this kingdom, this king, and then the, the ones that follow to send his people back home. It does its job and then he says, to the dustbin of history, you go. I support you. I protected you until you've accomplished my chosen purpose, and then you're gone. This is what God does. He, he brings up, he supports, and he protects as he chooses. But then we see in verse 3, he also breaks down and he divides as he chooses. So there's a 150-year gap between the end of verse 2 and the start of verse 3. You think the blank page in your Bible that's 400 years is a lot. This is a tiny space that's 150 years crammed right there. And in between those two, my Bible has an A and an H that just point to other verses. And then verse 3 starts. And so what happened during that 150-year period is not really that important to the story that God wants us to see. Scholars agree, starting in verse 3, that this warrior king is our boy, Alexander the Great. So he's talking about, I don't know why we whooped that, but it's him. Historians have written volumes about him, books on books. You've heard about him in school. You've studied him in other places. And what does God give him? One verse. Then a warrior king will arise. He will rule a vast realm and do whatever he wants. That's kind of the end. Verse 4, little. But as soon as he's established, then it's broken up. So God allows this powerful king who conquers the known world in his day, who ruled with absolute power. He, he does whatever he wanted, and he dies at the age of 33. As soon, verse 4, as he has established, his kingdom is broken up and divided to the four winds of heaven, but not to his descendants. It will not be the same kingdom that he ruled, because his kingdom will be uprooted and will go to others beside him. That's precisely what happened. We talked about it before. Alexander's sons were murdered. No part of his vast empire went to any of his descendants. And as we mentioned earlier, following his death, four of his generals get his kingdom, just divided up among them. Cassander gets Macedonia and Greece. Uh, Lamishimus gets Thrace and portions of Asia Minor. Uh, I hate this guy's name. Ptolemy took Egypt and Israel. Uh, Seleucius took Syria and Mesopotamia. They get all of those, but none of these kingdoms that were divided up ever measure up to the strength that Alexander had. In four verses, we get through Persia and the Greek empire. God plucks Alexander's kingdom up, divides it into four pieces, gave it to other people as he saw fit. And with that, Alexander the Great that's mentioned here is finished. He served God's plan and God's purposes, and he's gone. This is what we get. Verse 5. Now I want to show you something. There's this 
cast of characters that, that we need to see is going to go up on the screen because we see God raising up Egypt and God raising up Syria according to his plan and purposes, and he, he uses all of these people. So you just throw it up there. It's just that messy-looking slide. You, if you want, if you're a history nerd or you really care about these, take a picture of it on your phone or ask me afterwards. I'll send you this slide if you want. These are all of the characters that show up from verse 5 all the way to verse 32. And really the last one, uh, Antiochus right there, the fourth, Epiphanes, that guy, that kind of starts in verse 21 and goes through the rest. And so the other 17, I think, that are there are what's fixing to take place in the next 16 verses. Man. And when you look through this, you don't see any of their names. You don't understand what's going on here, but these are all of the people that Scripture is fixing to mention. History lesson, here we go. Are you ready? I'm sorry, but we have to do this. In the, in the grand scheme of world history, if you know it, you probably didn't study Egypt much, and you probably didn't study Syria much, because they didn't amount to much from this time frame, which was about 323 B.C. till about 163 B.C., this 200 or 160-year time period. The, the main global power during that time was Rome. We understand that. They're arising in the background. The reason, however, that we get to talk about Egypt and Syria here is because they play an important role in Israel's history and their relationship. They're playing like political ping pong with this country back and forth until this evil antichrist type figure that we talked about before, Epiphanes there on the end, he comes on the scene. We start reading that verse 20, 21 and on. But there's a civil war that's taking place between Egypt and Syria and Israel is just stuck in the middle of it. So Daniel, really, the, the angel here, Gabriel, is giving Daniel a view into what is to come. So starting in verse 5, we see God give Egypt this victory, but in giving them the victory, the king decided that he was the one that should get all of the glory for that. So the king of the south, that's that guy up there at the top of Egypt. The king of the south will grow powerful, but one of his commanders will grow more powerful and will rule a kingdom greater than his. We're going to keep going. After some years, they will form an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north. Sounds like, like Lord of the Rings. Um, to seal the agreement, she will not retain power, and his strength will not endure. She will be given up together with her entourage, her father, and, those, and the one who supported her during those times. In the place of the king of the south, one from her family will rise up, come against the army, and enter the fortress of the king of the north. He will take action against them and triumph. He will take even their gods captive to Egypt with their metal images and their precious articles of silver and gold. For some years, he will stay away from the king of the north, who will enter the kingdom of the king of the south, and then return to his own land. Anybody confused? Yeah, me too. Okay. His sons will mobilize for war and assemble a large number of armed forces. They will advance, sweeping through like a flood, and will again wage war as far as his fortress. Infuriated, the king of the south will march out to fight with the king of the north, who will raise a large army, but they will be handed over to his enemy. When the army is carried off, he will become arrogant and cause tens of thousands to fall, but he will not triumph. The king of the north will again raise a multitude larger than the first. After some years, he will advance with a great army and many supplies. So we, we see the record of the history of the Egyptian dominance. 
the king of the south. That's Soter up there. He's the king of the south. Is this um, the ruler of Egypt and a general under Alexander? One of his commanders that alludes to uh, Seleucus. That is Nicator. He's like the fourth guy up there. If you're just if you're making notes, he fleds to serve under Sotor um, and later then abandons him and returns back to the northern kingdom. It's all the stuff that we just read. There he is greatly increased in power, eventually controlling more territory than the first guy. His kingdom is include, includes uh, Babylon, Syria, uh, Media. He, is, he has the largest division of all of the Greek empire. He rises to that much power. But then conflicts continue between the kingdom of Egypt and the kingdom of Syria. The first Ptolemy dies in 285. War continues under his son. He would be the second one, Philadelphus. I like that name. That should be one of your like uh, nicknames. Uh, Philadelphus takes over, and according to tradition, he commissions the translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek. This guy. Hebrew Bible is... Translated into Greek, it's called the Septuagint. Finally, the second there made a treaty of peace with Seleucid, the ruler. Um, Antosius Theos, who's the grandson of him. You're still trying to keep up with me? I, I know you're probably lost. The grandson of Seleucus, go up above that from 312 to 280. Around 250 BC, this is verse 6. It's referring to this alliance that they make. After some years, they will form an alliance the daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north and seal the agreement. Her name, Berenice. Not on there. Berenice is uh, Ptolemy's daughter, arranged to marry Antosius, the king of the north. That's what seal the agreement means between the two kingdoms. Marriages for political power was a big thing back then. It's going on for a long time. But Antosius was already married to a woman, Laodice. Not up there either. But you know, when one woman comes after another woman's man, you have trouble. The former wife, the woman scorned, took revenge and succeeded in murdering Antosius, Berenice, and their child. So none of them retain power. This is just through verse 6. You're like, what in the world? This is the prophecy revealed to us. Verse 7, Berenice's brother, this is the third uh, Urigate, Urigate, what is his name? Urigate, yeah, that guy, Urigates. The third one appears. He succeeded his father to the throne of Egypt, and in retaliation for his sister's murder, he attacked Syria, the king of the north, with a great army. That war lasted for five years, from 246 B.C. to 241 B.C. Ptolemy captured and looted the Seleucid capital of Antioch, which is the fortress of the king of the north. We read it. They seized all of Syria's gods and other valuables. That's verse 8. They returned to Egypt with the treasures, including the sacred idols that had been taken by the Persian monarch. All of that comes back. The king of the north, subject of verse 9. You saw there, just following along with me, zoom in, who will enter the kingdom of the king of the south and return to his own land we don't have any further information about that except he attempted to invade Egypt, but that campaign was really brief and he just gets sent back home. That Syrian king, so you see, is the second over here on this next column. He dies in 226 BC, but his sons, the third, 
on that list, on this column over here. The third, Anantosius III, they call him the Great. They continued their conflicts with Ptolemies. So you see, the third was murdered after like a little three-year reign. His brother, Antosius III, came into power. He was called the Great because he was pretty good at fighting in his military successes. 219 to 218 BC, he campaigned in uh, Phoenicia and Palestine and kind of gained part of the Potolic Empire there. In response, Ptolemy IV, Philometor, Philometer, sounds like you're measuring something. Philometer. He launches a counterattack against this guy. Ptolemy would win a great victory over Antosius and the Syrians in 217. Because of this victory, Ptolemy becomes arrogant in verse 12. The Egyptian army slaughtered tens of thousands of Syrian troops in this battle through this triumph, and then it does not continue. Because the text implies in verse 11 that God gave the king of the south Egypt its victory. However, as the human heart is so easily, we read about it in James, as the human heart is so easily inclined to do, this Egyptian king becomes arrogant. His heart was exalted by himself. He became proud. And we all know what God does with proud men. He's done. And this is the end. He raises up Egypt and Syria according to his plan and purposes. He gives Egypt a victory, but the king exalts himself and then it is done. And so what does God start to do in verse 13? He gives Syria the victory, but Syria's king is also willful, insolent. He's he's just that type of guy. So verse 13, the king of the north will again rise a multitude larger than the first. And after some years, he will advance with a great army and many supplies. Verse 14, in those times, many will rise up against the king of the south, Egypt. Violent ones among your own people will assert themselves to fulfill a vision, but they will fail. Then the king of the north, Syria, will come, build up a siege ramp. I don't know what that is, but it sounds cool. Builds up a siege ramp and capture a well-fortified city. I mean, they just built a ramp to go over the wall. The forces of the south will not stand. Even their select troops will not be able to resist. The king of the north who comes against him will do whatever he wants, and no one can oppose him. He will establish himself in the beautiful land with total destruction in his hand. He will resolve to come with the force of his whole kingdom and will reach an agreement with him. He will give him a daughter in marriage to destroy it, but she will not stand with him or support him. Then he will turn his attention to the coasts and islands and capture many, but a commander will put an end to his taunting. Instead, he will turn his taunts against him. He will turn his attention back to the fortress of his own land, but he will stumble, fall, and be no more. In his place, one will rise who will send out a tax collector for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days, he will be broken, though not in anger or in battle. Okay, hold on. Verse 13 is this change in direction that we see. It it goes back to a period of Syrian, the, the Seleucid supremacy. So 15 years after the Egyptians slaughter the Syrians in 202, Antosius III, you can go back to the list. It's just going to help us, maybe. Maybe not. You'll get more confused. Antosius III, that's Magnus. That's a name. Magnus invades 
Egypt with a huge army. And the occasion for that death, or the, the occasion for the invasion was the death of Ptolemy the fourth in 203. And at that point, when Ptolemy the fourth died, his son is crowned, and that's the fifth, and he's six years old. Six-year-old king. Can anybody? Like, how, how fun that would be? Six-year-old king is the new Egyptian ruler. And so among those that rise up against the king of the south were Philip V, Macedon, and these revolutionaries within Egypt who were like, we don't need a six-year-old king. They were also violent ones that were among Daniel's own people that, that, refer, that, that just um, references the Jews who aided in um, Antiochus' fight. So these Israelites assert themselves against Egypt to fulfill a vision that's probably, possibly recorded here. They've, they've seen this prophecy and they go, oh, I know about this fight. Here we go. The fulfillment of this prediction was not intended for these person, but for these people, but was nonetheless the result. But those who sided with Antiochus will fail. Their defeat came at the hands of the Egyptian general Scropus, who was himself eventually defeated. Antiochus, Antiochus third, the third one, Magnus, again, we're back to him. Syrian forces advanced against, against Egypt in the Battle of Panium, which is now, if you care, uh, Banian, which is near the area of Caesarea Philippi. It's mentioned in the Gospels. And they won by a resounding victory. It wasn't even really a fair fight. And they pushed the Egyptian soldiers south. They capture Sidon in Egypt, which is the well-fortified city where General Scopus finally surrendered in 198 BC. The south had suffered such a de uh, decisive defeat there to the hands of the north that they were done. And so with the defeat of the Egyptians, Antiochus acquired complete control of the entire area. This is, this is what he gets. And he does whatever he wants in verse 16. No one can oppose him, we read. And although the Palestinian area had come under control... Antiochus' control for a brief time, it would now be the permanent possession of the Syrian empire. And the, the phrase that we read there, with total destruction in his hand, emphasizes his complete control over the beautiful land. And I read this, David Helm says this, earlier in Daniel, we came across the phrase, the glorious or beautiful land in chapter eight, verse nine. And we see it again in this chapter here, and then we'll see it again in verse 41. In both instances, this beautiful land refers to Israel, to Jerusalem, and to the city of God. And this is important for us to set this stage for the reign of terror because what follows as the Syrians lead, it, it gets us to Epiphanes, who is labeled in Daniel as the Antichrist. And when you read through this and you, you understand the Syrian forces invade, they take over the Egyptian king, they, to seal the deal, they give... Um, Antosius gave his daughter. His daughter's name was Cleopatra, but not the one that you're thinking of when I say that. Not the one that married Mark Anthony to, you know, that's 100 years later. He, he gave his daughter, maybe Cleopatra I, we'll call her that, um, to the Egyptian ruler as a wife. Antosius hoped that through Cleopatra, he could gain further control of Egypt, but his plan doesn't succeed. Why? Because Cleopatra loved her husband more than her father, and she supported e Egypt and its cause completely. 
And so verses 18 and 19, when you read that, you see, then he will turn his attention to the coasts and the islands, capture many, but a commander will put an end to his taunting. Instead, he will turn his taunts against him. He will turn his attention back to the fortress of his own land, but will stumble, fall, and be no more. This is Antiochus's defeat and end as he's trying to win this battle with his daughter and she doesn't support him. He is defeated. The commander who will put an end to his taunting and instead turn his taunts against him, that is Cornelius of the Roman government. So in 191 BC, the Romans show up fighting with their Greek allies, routed the Syrians at uh, that battle and forced them to withdraw from Greece and flee into Asia Minor. 30,000 Roman troops pursued them into Asia and defeated this much larger army of 70,000 people at the Battle of Magnesia near Turkey in 190 BC. After that defeat, Antiochus returned to his country where he was killed by an angry mob in 187 as he sought to pillage the temple of Zeus. This is verse 19 at Elmas. He indeed stumbled, fell, and was no more. The son of Antiochus III, we want to put it at Antiochus IV, but there's a guy in between that. Seleucius IV is his son. He sends a tax collector to collect money to pay the thousand talent demand that was part of being a part of the Roman Empire. It's kind of their tax. Basically, they settled in Syria, and Rome said, you just pay us uh, as part of your surrender to us. We'll just let you live there, but you have to pay us to do this. This guy reigned for only a few years and was not killed by an angry mob like his father or in battle. He, he was a tax collector and prime minister who was seeking to gain the throne for himself and more than likely was poisoned by the guy who followed him. So he's trying to weasel his way into power, and Antiochus IV poisons him and kills him. So the stage is set at this point for this Antichrist figure that we saw before in Daniel where to just come onto the scene. History has just unfolded just as God said it would. Kingdoms and their rulers come and they go. They live and they die. They win and they lose. And all of this we see from this angel. Yes, it's confusing. There's a lot that just happened here. The history for this could take a long time to teach. And we just kind of flew through it. Some of you caught it. Some of you were like, nope, I wasn't even paying attention. They win, they lose, and our great God in heaven watches it all unfold. And we read in Psalm 2, verse 4, one of the coolest verses in Scripture. It says, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. He ridicules them. You, you think that you gained this power? You think that you got your way to here? You think that your kingdom is great? That's on me. He laughs at their thoughts of how great they are. And so this is unusual, unique, difficult passage, for sure. I agree with all of that. You should sit there and go, John agrees with me that this is a challenge. I spent about two months in here, like bouncing these things around. How do I present this? What type of history? I'm just going to present it as I see it, and it's going to confuse some of you. You're going to ask me for the notes later. That's fine. Here's the things that I saw, though, in the first 20 verses. God is never mentioned by name. We don't see Yahweh, Elohim, anything like that in here. And there's a lot of unfamiliar imagery that, that our like, Western 21st, 21st century mindset doesn't even grasp. 
And so if you haven't caught this at Bible study, we do this thing uh, called BLIO, Big Little Inside Out. Uh, if your leaders haven't told you that, it's, it's how they ask questions at the end. Um, and, and I want to add something for you leaders to the BLIO today. Uh, and so when we go big, little, inside out, I also want to ask a question about Jesus. This is just a basic uh, theological and practical idea to help you understand any part of Scripture that you want. It's, it's ask questions this way, and it'll, it more than likely will push you into the right thought space to understand God more clearly from this portion of Scripture. And so these are the questions. What does this text teach us about God? And you may want to write this down. Daniel chapter 11 is challenging. But what does it teach us about God? What do we see here? I said it at the beginning. God is sovereign. He's omniscient. He knows the future even to the smallest detail. He controls all of that. He can predict the future with pinpoint accuracy because he's writing it. He's above all of it. He sees it taking place even now. Back in Daniel 4.17, we were taught, the most high is ruler over, hing- over human kingdoms. He gives them to anyone he wants, sets the lowliest of people over them. This is our God. He's the one that breaks up. He's the one that divides. He's the one that uproots. He's the one that appoints. He does all of that in chapter 11. These earthly rulers are just pawns in the sovereign hand of an omnipotent and omniscient and providential God. He does what he wants. This is what this says about our God. He is sovereign. But what does this text teach us about us? God is the big, we're the little. What does this text teach us about fallen humanity? It's the way I like to ask this question. What does it teach us about us? Man, in our depraved, prideful, sinful passion for power, and recognition and possessions will fight wars and do whatever we want if we can. Strength <laughs> makes us right. We think that the stronger we are, that the more power we have, we exalt our heart and our sense of self-worth above everything else. And given the opportunity, we will trample over other people with little to no regard for those that get trampled in the process. This is clearly the story of human history since the fall, all throughout, and it's going to continue to be the legacy of humans until God returns and makes things right. That's what it says about us. And, and you know that to be true outside of being spirit-led in right relationship with God. This is our default. I want to add this one to the BLIO. What does this teach us about Christ? This is a challenging question because this passage and the one that follow must be read in context of Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 9, some things that he's pointing us to. There we see the Son of Man coming in glory to receive the ancient, as the Ancient of Days to receive the kingdom that will not pass away, that will never be destroyed. His kingdom is not this fly-by-night instant empire that's here today and gone tomorrow like we read about here. It's an empire that will last forever. And when we see this anointed ruler in Daniel chapter 9 does not uh, go about this lighthearted. He, this ruler brings rebellion to an end. 
He puts a stop to sin. He wipes away iniquity. He brings everlasting righteousness. It's Daniel 9, 24, 25, 26, 27. And this is the contrast to what earthly rulers who are power hungry do because this humble king, born in a manger in the little town of Bethlehem, living in Galilee, says, I didn't come to be served but to serve. I put the needs of others ahead of my own. I'm that type of king and that type of ruler. Different than what humans are going to naturally do, I'm that type of ruler. That's what it can teach us about Christ. I read this passage and I have to think about my inside, big little inside out. What, is, what does God want me to know? What do, I, what do I need to process? When you have a right relationship with Christ, pride gives way to humility. Wanting more and more gives way to giving and serving. Gathering for yourself turns into giving to others. A passion to build my kingdom fades and I grow in my passion to build God's kingdom. This is what we need to see here on the inside. As I see Jesus more clearly, my lustful, sinful, prideful desires shift in a way that bring God glory in my response. And so then we read these verses and we go, okay, that's the inside, what's the outside? What does God want me to do with this? We read this, and, and rightfully confused in some spaces, but you have to see we gotta, we got to learn from the mistakes of, of sinful men and women that came before us. They pursued their own earthly gain and not a heavenly reward. They avoid, they jumped into the, the pitfalls of pride and greed. we got to learn to avoid those things. Instead, we have to pursue Christ, as we talked about, and his traits of humility and generosity and service and love of other people. And you won't act and look and live like the kings that we see in Daniel chapter 11 if you strive to look at the king, Jesus, more clearly through his word. You will, however, begin to change the world around you. And I, and I love this. What is echoed over and over in the first four verses, two countries, rulers, nations are destroyed. In the next 16 verses, two more rise up and are destroyed. But if you seek God in this way, trying to look like the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, then you get to be a part of an everlasting kingdom that will not fade. This is what God is calling us to in a pretty challenging chunk of scripture. We read it and we go, what is God calling me to do? Look at Jesus and then reflect his attributes to the world. Not like these men and women did, but in a way that honors him. Let me pray and let's respond in worship. God, we, we say it a lot, but thank you for challenging parts of Scripture. Um, and, and, and even as I prepared, and even as I talked to leaders, and I said, this is just one of those that, that men way smarter than me said that we should not preach or teach through. But for some reason, you use it to bring life, and you stir our affections. And as Sierra prayed, like your word doesn't return void. And so we trust that you will use it to rearrange our thoughts and our minds and our actions to look more and more like Jesus. And so may we learn lessons. May we trust fully prophecy. May we understand the sovereignty of God who goes before and controls all things. And may we just go ahead and join that team, trusting that you will use us in ways that are greater than ourselves. If we would just be faithful to look at Jesus, led by the Spirit, having our head turned to see him more clearly. 
engaging with the mission that you've called us to. And so tonight, would you stir that in us as we respond in worship? Um, would you be speaking things over us that we need to, to share with our friends, to be held accountable, that we need to, to concrete into our lives, being led by the Spirit just to, to make an impact? And so would you call us deeper tonight? Uh, God, we thank you that you control history. We thank you that you rise up and you tear down kingdoms for your glory. And if you do that, then you can use men and women in this room to be a part of writing a story that brings you um, everlasting glory. And we just get to be a part of it. And so why wouldn't we be? And so Lord, I'm, I'm just asking that you would use people in this room. You call them deeper. You give us a boldness to embrace that and to run after you. And then just lean back and see what you're gonna do. And we trust you to do that because you're the only one trustworthy too by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's respond and worship.